Tuck Garage, welcome aboard. Maximo, welcome. Hey, Warren. Hey, Warren, give me an audio check. Check, check, check. Hey, Chris. Welcome. I'm in a new seat today. I'm in the shipping department. It's a little quieter. <laughs> I'm no god. So, uh, hey, Bart, welcome aboard. A whole bunch of other people just joined. Hi, guys. So, uh, audio check good. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. So, uh, I'm on the other end of the garage today. The grinder where I'm usually situated is yonder. It's actually grinding, so let it grind. Uh, but it's kind of no it's quieter here than there, so I, I kind of quickly moved over here. And this might be where we end up from now on. But, uh, yeah. Uh-oh, there's trouble. Welcome, Chris. Awesome. So, happy Sunday. It's another Sunday in the shop. Pretty normal Sunday, <laughs> except for one thing. About 15 minutes ago, our internet went down. And uh, it was Comcast's fault. And about five minutes ago, uh, my wife poked her head in the shop and said, did you know there's a Comcast van on down the street? <laughs> so, yeah, something happened, uh, I think, next door. And they screwed up our internet. But we're back, and hopefully we'll stay back. If, if we disappear hang in there we'll come back but I don't I don't know if that's gonna happen we'll see so around here we just call it Sunday so uh, presently in the shop uh, we've got six inch PFG stones underway that's what's going on over there uh, so if my customers that have are waiting on six inch stones it's all everything's on schedule but they will go out in the morning they'll ship it they'll ship in the morning um, what else I went to Boston last night for the first time in a while had uh, had dinner with the family and that was a lot of fun and uh, yeah good times so I've uh, we're waiting on our special guest today. I'm, I'm waiting for him to pop in. Um, I don't see him yet, and when we do, we'll get we'll get to it. As men, if you've been following me, and if you're here, you've probably been following me. Um, I finally pulled the trigger on a monochromatic light source um, for for looking at very very small deviations from flatness and uh, that that is already been a lot of fun and I'm going to talk about that today at some length but also we're going to have Adam come in oh you're going to Boston Tuesday excellent uh, yeah Museum of Science is a favorite place I'm, I'm on live Jared what's up no importa Okay. 
So, uh, I haven't been to the Museum of Science in a while. That sounds like a lot of fun. It, should, it really should be a lot of fun. But I've passed the Museum of Science about 20 times in the last couple months. Pretty cool. Hey, if you if you're if you're zipping by, Warren, let me know. You can stop in uh, if the if the uh, conditions are right and the planets line up. Uh, so what what does everybody else have going on in the shop today? As we wait for our guests to show up. Hope, I hope everything's okay with Adam. If anybody, um, let's see, I, I haven't seen Ox Tools pop in yet. <laughs> and I don't have another uh, channel to Adam, so. Anyway. Scraping the bed of your lathe, Alphonse. Excellent. Sounds awesome. Chris is listening to 80s music and height gauge dingus building. I saw your the beginnings of your uh, tool height setter. That's kind of cool. And Warren is having a non-shop day. Well, you're entitled. That's okay. We talked about that, didn't we? So Alphonse is working on a mini lathe and he's scraping the bed. What does uh, um, our friend in Germany call it? Uh, uh, the mini lathe is a kit. Uh, Bart is cleaning up the surface grinder. Jones and Shipman 540. Outstanding. Tuck Garage is prepping for a belt rack display. Nice. What else is going on? Magnavik went to a swap meet in Norway today. Haven't had one since before COVID. Excellent. Did you spend any money? <laughs> oh, there he is. Uh, the toot has shown up. Laney Machine Tech, as I live and breathe. Who would have thought you would have show up today? Welcome aboard, sir. So, uh, the story is, is that last... Last week we had, um, not uh, two weeks ago, we had Robin on and we talked about lapping. And lapping was our thing. And uh, that was like taking a sip of water from a fire hydrant. Uh, we're still absorbing that information. And uh, since then, purely coincidentally, I finally pulled the trigger and bought a monochromatic light source. I will tell you that I had already, for months and months, I've been doing some background messing about with monochromatic light sources. And we're going to be talking that today with, uh, with Adam. Um, so get your questions ready. If you have uh, an app with the little question button at the bottom, uh, that might be the, that's the best way to submit a question. The second best way to submit a question is uh, right in the chat. And the reason I say that is it will scroll off sometimes and I don't want to miss anybody's questions. Um, so if you're joining us, if, if you're joining for the first time, you've never been on one of these IG Lives, uh, I'm Spencer Webb, I'm in New Hampshire, uh, my company is Kinetic Precision. We make PFG stones, precision flat ground stones. They're PFG. Uh, and 
that has led to all sorts of other uh, crazy interests. Uh, that is the very first pair of PFG stones ever made uh, in my shop. And this was shown on Instagram in 2017, I think. Uh, and today we've invited Adam uh, from Laney Machine Tech to come join us and just hang out. So, Adam, here's your instructions. At the bottom of your thing, there's a button that says, that has a little camera symbol with a little plus sign in it uh, that says request to join video. So if you hit that button, Adam, I will bring you in. And while he's doing that, a question did pop in. <laughs> All right, that's going to be our first uh, our first question. Stand by. This might take a moment. There he is. Oh, that's oh. the wrong aspect ratio. Hold Wait on. Wait a minute. <laughs> now you got it. There we go. Hey, buddy. How's it going, buddy? Welcome aboard. Thank you. Um, let's see. I'll get my volume all the way up. So uh, how's things on your side of the world? Good, good. Uh, you know, my, my son, my newborn son, was born like uh, three months ago, and he's, he's doing great. He's pooping and screaming and sleeping and eating and doing all the things that a newborn <laughs> ought to do. Um, and in terms of the college... Uh, we just had our open house yesterday. That's our like big event for the year. And it was very, very well attended. It was the first one for the last couple of years that we did in person. And uh, yeah, it was a huge success. Uh, we had the UMC 500 running, which actually got finally uh, hooked up, calibrated, aligned, Yay. Uh, set up on Friday. So right before the open house. So that was a really cool event. Oh, awesome. Were you making like sample goodies on it while the open house was going? Yeah, we had like a whole manufacturing cell uh, set up. So the one thing was, uh, so what we're making is kind of just like a fidget toy. Are you familiar with the Turner's Cube project? Yeah. Yeah. So we have a version of that called the Miller's Cube. Uh, and it's like a captured geometric shape that's got different, you know, it's a cross on one side and a circle on one side and a square on the other. And it's a five axis project. You do five sides out of six in one setup, then you flip it over and you deck the sixth side and do um, like the last shape. And on the very last cut uh, of the last part of the program, the geometric shape finally falls out. And so we, we were making a bunch of those and giving them away to uh, people who came by. So it's pretty cool. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun. The, the five put dovetail prep on them too. So we were holding it in uh, like a fifth axis fixture with a, with a dovetail clamp. So it, it was a really great example of, uh, you know, not just uh, what machining is, but also sort of what the, the future of uh, automation is as well. Awesome. Uh, we, I had joked uh, months ago about fitting a UMC 500 in my garage, but I don't, I don't think that's going to be happening. <laughs> they're a lot bigger than they look in the pictures, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're pretty tall. They're and, so tall. Yeah. And that was... I, when I actually looked at the numbers, that was one of the problems. But we, we joked about that. You know, I, like, actually seeing it apart 
uh, when the guy was doing the uh, the installation. It's mostly sheet metal. If you take off the sheet metal, it's like two thirds of the size that it yeah. looks like. And there's just a lot of like dead space in there. I think they do that for service. Um, but yeah, it's it's much smaller than the board cube that it looks like. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, so the, uh, the the return from from COVID and the and the open house sounds like it was a real uh, a real shot in the arm. Mm. Uh, a lot of fun. But the reason we brought you here today, sir, is to talk about nerdy things. Excellent. So. So I got my I got my monochromatic light source, and I got it up and running as you saw, and I did my first, my very first ever. Uh, hey, Ukraine, welcome aboard. Uh, Alexinko, welcome, man. Appreciate you. Um, I did my very first observation of a surface with with the optical flat, and I was blown away. It was it was just awesome. So uh, we're here to talk about whatever questions anybody has and whatever you want to talk about. Uh, cool. Well, you know, I'm I'm here at home in my garage. I set up a whole bunch of stuff. For, so brought a whole bunch of monochromatic light sources that are going to be uh, a lot cheaper and easier to source than the beautiful Van Kieran that you sourced, um, and then also some. Uh, various optical flats and uh, you know like a kind of cheap version of an optical flat that you can that you can get for like less than eight dollars um, nice. so stuff like that also I always bring books right so I've got two books one related and one not related okay uh, so I don't know man well we, we we have a leadoff question uh, Warren Jones who is a New Hampshire a fellow New Hampshireite asks is Adam B from the planet the same planet as Robin? No, I'm not. I visited once though. <laughs> yeah, off on me. I heard the food's really good there. It's really good, but once you eat it, you're ruined for life. <laughs> like you know, one of those old like mythological parables where if you go into the underworld and you eat down there, then you forever have to stay in the underworld. That's like common across Greek, Norse, like many many mythologies. But that yeah. that that's the issue there. I heard that about sushi. <laughs> so uh let's see okay so we're open for questions and we'll take a few questions and then we'll jump into your demos and stuff because i really uh am quite a uh, warren warren responds lol which in his on his planet means something i'm not sure what uh, so uh, does anybody have any questions for adam Job Shop Machining says, I wish I had Adam's intelligence. And to that, I respond, are you sure? Are you sure? I think that was... Uh, that's that's a nice thing to say. I don't think about myself like that. Yeah. But it's a nice thing to say. What would a hobby machinist have a use for optical flats and, and the light source? Tuck yeah. So, like, applications... That's a good place to start, right? Like, what's the motivation? Why would you even have such a thing? Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, in my hobbies, right, the stuff that I don't do literally for a living that I get paid for, I use optical flats all the time, but that's partially just because I'm a nerd about those sort of things. Uh, but I, I have used it, you know, to evaluate grinds. I've used it to evaluate surface finishes, which is something you might not think about. Uh, I've used it to evaluate 
my reference tools, right? So I use it to evaluate gauge blocks. I use it to evaluate micrometer contact surfaces. So those are some of the reasons why you might want to do something like that. And also if you're getting into, you know, there, if you want to get into like the ultra precision regime of, of machining, if you want to start making gauges or something like that, there are like two ways to do it, right? You can either buy really expensive equipment that makes it easy for you, and then you just learn how to operate that equipment, or you learn the tried and true, but very finicky hand methods of lapping and polishing and those kinds of things. And uh, when, you're, when you're doing a hand process, whether it's that type or scraping or any kind of hand process, the precision is not in the motion. It's not in the metal cutting operation. The precision is in the feedback, right? So the optical flat is your feedback for lapping, and then you correct, right, with the hand operation. So those optical flats, you know, you can think about it like they're, yeah, they're, they're optical indicators, right? They just use interferometry, but to give you similar information that you could get using like a test indicator. Awesome. Uh, and I think that you make a really good point that we take our uh, precision tools and references for granted sometimes, but they can be checked. Yeah, exactly. It's and some of the stuff is harder than others, you know, uh, but some things are surprisingly easy to do. Yeah. Um, and which brings up a, a very interesting question, which is a home shop guy setting up to, to do optical stuff. I know I went on, uh, I went on eBay and I found some uh, import surplus, you know, optical flats, and they check out really well. Small ones, about that big. And uh, oh, oh, from like Ch Chinese imports or something. I think I think it was uh, other, but I, I I don't think I want to tell you where they came from at this moment. Uh, <laughs> so uh, those those look like pretty good. But then I bought a. Um, there was a mirror like a six inch mirror on eBay that was ripped out of some system and I got it for cheap money. And just this week after owning it for, it has to be five years. Now that I have the, the light source, I was able to run around and compare optical flats. And the thing is, the thing's perfect. Hmm. So for, for a couple of bucks, 30 bucks or something, 40 bucks, I got a six inch, uh, essentially a six inch optical flat. So I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear about your um, $8 solution. <laughs> yeah, so the, the thing about, you know, when people are looking for optical flats, I mean, optical flats are what metrologists call a piece of glass that is super flat and shiny on one side. But opticians will call that many other things. They call them optical windows. They call them non-coated mirrors. Uh, you know, and they call them, oh gosh, it was another one that I can't remember now. Um, anyway, but the point is that they call them different things, right? And so you're really just looking for that basic thing, right? Something that is flat and shiny on one side that you can use as a reference that you can shine light through. Um, so my, my solution for a cheap optical flat is actually a, an uncoated mirror and this came from surplusshed.com which is like one of my favorite websites of all time um these periodically go on sale and they this one inch version goes down from like 
$5 a pop to like a dollar a pop. So I bought an S ton of these so that the next time that I do, I used to do like a, like a lapping and flatness evaluation workshop in the before times. And hopefully we'll be able to do one of those again. So I bought enough of these that students can use them and then take them home as like a souvenir and check gauge blocks with them. The only issue with this is that, uh, so one side is, yeah, quarter, quarter wave flatness, meaning that the, the, the variation from the high spot to the low spot over the entire surface is equal to or less than one quarter of the wavelength of light that was used to inspect it. And usually that's based on the red that comes from a neon uh, or a helium neon laser. Okay, so that's, I can't remember now. So somewhere in the 20 millionths of an inch range per wavelength. Okay, so that's pretty gosh darn flat. But you can only evaluate the flatness of a test subject um, to a degree that your flat is accurate, right? So I can only guarantee that something is flat within a quarter wave if I use this. So quarter wave is absolutely basic, you know, the, the least precision that is acceptable. And then they go to 120 or sorry, 110th wave and 120th wave. 120th would be total overkill. And you'd probably, it would probably lose that accuracy as soon as you touch it. <laughs> but 110th is, is pretty good. Um, the only problem with these, right, is that the other side is frosted. Oh, okay. Some of these are better than others. You can see through them a little bit easier. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I've I, one of the setups that I've got here, the little demonstration, is showing people how you can get around that frosting. Do you mind if I show people? Let it rip. All right. And by the way, they come in different sizes. So you can get like uh, one of these non-coated mirrors in. Um, this is just the one-inch version, the 25-millimeter version, but they also come in... Uh, they come in 30 millimeter, 50 millimeter, and even 60 millimeter. So you can get some pretty good size ones. So uh, while Adam's setting up, um, if you guys do have questions and you do have the question button, please submit it that way. Otherwise, you could put it in the chat and I'll grab it. I, uh, Instagram chip of the week has joined. If you're waiting for a picture of chips, they could be really small. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see if I can do this. It's always hard to um, to show uh, interferograms. Uh, I can see it. Okay, good. So I've got this under a, uh, so one of my, this was the first monochromatic light source I ever bought. It's a dual mono light. So it's a helium light yeah. source. Boom. Very, very nice. But not necessary. I mean, you can get way cheaper stuff. I paid way too much for this thing just so that I could have it. But that was before I knew about how easy it is to build uh, monochromatic light sources. So anyway, so here it is. You can kind of see it in there. This one, the frosting is not as coarse. Um, but some of them are a lot worse than that. So one really easy trick is I've just got a little bit of water here. And if you get a little bit of water on that top surface. So you're putting a, a drop of water on the frosted surface. On the frosted surface. And that just fills in. Oh, it's kind of dirty right now, so it's not wetting very nicely. But in any case, there you can see. Oh, oh. I lost the fringes. 
I try to live on the fringe. <laughs> Can you see that at all? Um, and now it's too shiny. Push it, push it to twelve o'clock. The whole, the whole block. And just push it up. Let's see. Can I, can I focus or anything on here? IG is not going to let me focus. No, oh, I, I see a couple of fringes, but they're, uh, yeah. they were the long way. Yeah. You see that? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, like I said, it's really difficult to to image these interferograms like this. Um, but you just put a little water on there, right? And it fills up the cavities in the frosting and it makes it reflective. Neat. Now, the only thing that I would worry about with this uh, is that, you know, evaporative cooling, basically, so that as it cools on one side, it might bow out the bottom side. Yep. But another thing that you can do is you can put a little bit of tape on it. And uh, I actually tried this tape. This tape is not clear, not perfectly clear. It's a little bit uh, op opaque, right? Um, so this one actually doesn't work very well. But if you get like some clear scotch tape and just put it on the surface, it'll smush down and the glue will fill up the frosting. And then that works just as well. Pretty cool. Nice, nice idea with the tape. Um, yeah, these, these are actually not my ideas. I have to say this was uh, came from another person on Instagram. Daniel Reitz, who goes by Vice Chief, he's got all kinds of cool tricks like that. So we question. We actually had two questions come in. Uh, I'm just going to grab the uh, Tuck Garage question. How much space do you need for a basic setup? Do you need a dark room or anything? Uh, I'll let you take that. No. No, I mean this is this is what it is. Right? You just need a light, and then you need an optical flat that is, you know, whatever size you want to view, right? I mean, that's your, that's, you, you want to cover the surface, right? Uh, because you want to be able to evaluate the entire surface at once, right? It, if you're trying to like move the optical flat around on the surface, you have to have some way to sort of join all of those readings, right? So you just want something that's about the same size as your surface. And that's it, man. That's the whole setup. You don't need a dark room, although sometimes it helps to turn off the lights. Yeah, I have a piece of uh, black foam core from the art supply store. And when I was playing with the monochromatic light, I kind of put the black foam core over it just to keep the, keep the extraneous light out. And that helped a lot, too. Uh -huh. um, let's see. Uh, Firmworks asks, what do you enjoy about getting everything so flat? Uh, yeah, it's not specifically flatness that excites me. It's just getting things down to that, to that tolerance. I, I'm just kind of constantly amazed that you can do that, uh, especially with basic tools. There is nothing super fancy about anything that's used uh, in you know, interferometry. You can get super fancy, but you don't need to. I mean, that that mirror, right? It's that was like a dollar. A little bit of water on top, and then yeah, I've got an expensive helium light source. But as I'll show you in a moment, it's you can use lots of different things, um, and you know, you could spend as little money as you want to. And so, just by using that feedback process and rubbing two things together, you can get that you can get that flat or you know that cylindrical. 
Aha! Yeah. So it's whatever it is, whatever the, the basic geometry is, it's amazing to me that you can do that with such simple means. Yeah, I'll, I'll, echo, I'll echo that. Uh, you know, doing, doing measurements down in the microns or observations down in the microns, uh, down in the hun hundreds of nanometers is ridiculous. Um, and it's, it's just too much fun. And, and being able to do something intentionally at that at that level is pretty is pretty cool um let's see alex Zinko asks how are your first steps in scraping going i'm not sure what he's referring to um it like on the optical comparator i mean well all the scraping on that is done Yay. I was just sitting here and I'm, I'm working on the optical system now. I already have the DRO brackets made. And so that's done. <laughs> that was a great project, by the way. If, if no, if you, yeah, I feel like everybody should have to scrape uh, three mutually perpendicular dovetails, like on a milling machine. I, I swear it's like the best learning experience. It's like that, single point cutting screw threads on a manual lathe. And like, there's like a handful of those things that you do that like just up your understanding as a machinist uh, to such a degree that it, it should be mandatory. So as, as an educator, I would, I would challenge you to come up with this, like the, the, ten, the 10 commandments, the 10, the 10 things that everybody needs to, to achieve so that if we could get a check mark in all 10 boxes, you know, we could, we could, name ourselves you know ox tools and move off to the country yeah they would be like well the, yeah they would have to be more than just like basic skills right they would have to be like 10 keystone or uh, capstone projects right so it would be like you have to do a bunch of stuff to work your way up to that level because there's a lot that goes into you know like doing basic work that leads up to scraping those three mutually perpendicular dovetails that's that's really tough, man. And I had done some work on bridge ports before, but never done one like from start to finish. And uh, wow. That's pretty cool. So we're going to call it the 10 keystones. We're going to have to work on that. Yeah, the 10 capstone projects. Capstones. 10, 10 capstones. Okay. Ten. Grinding and Grinding asks, could you polish the other side of that flat? The frosted side, I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely could. Um, I was talking to like another Instagrammer, uh, Matthew something, but he's, you know, uh, he's Minty Matt. Yeah. Minty Matt, that guy, extra Minty Matt. Thank you. Um, so I was talking to him about it, trying to ask him and he said, yeah, you can totally do it. You could use a pitch lap and some cerium oxide and you can get it really, really shiny. Um, the problem is that as you work one side, you run the risk of distorting the other side because glass actually has a lot of stress in it. So that's, that's the downside. But, you know, the thing is that if you've got two of these things, you can always continuously check them against each other and make sure that they don't move. And it's very, very possible that you'll get it in without distorting it, right? I mean, sort of, it's a game of chance. Cool. Um, let's see, you've got another one. Son of a Fitch asks, can you lap? a flat surface without messing up parallelism to an opposite side. You, you sort of answered the uh, first derivative of that question. Um, uh, you definitely can. 
you just, again, you have to have a feedback. So like when I was doing, I mean, this is kind of the same thing as, you know, can you lap something flat while maintaining some other type of geometry, right? So my example here is going to be the cylinder square. Where is that guy? The cylinder square, where I was lapping the base, right? So that it was perpendicular to the center axis of the cylinder. And in the video that I show, um, I have a flat lap that I put on top. Well, so I had the cylinder inverted upside down. So the bottom is face up and I put a flat lap on top of it. And it was out like 24 millionths of an inch or something. And so I was just putting a little extra pressure on the high spot as I was lapping and it brought it in. And it, I mean, it, it was so fast. It took so little effort. I, I was shocked actually at how fast it went, which is great because it went fast, but also scary because how easy could you mess that up? Yeah. But of course, if you're doing something for the purposes of achieving your, your capstone, uh, that's the whole point, right? Is to get yeah. the for, for what it takes. That would be very cool. By the way, I did get a call back from Kemet because uh, I, I, I found they have a Texas rep. And uh, so I'm going to be calling them this week about diamond stuff, diamond lap, uh, lapping material. See if I can squeeze some samples out of them or, or something. Yeah. All right. Um, Rob was talking last last time when you had him in. Robin was talking about how um, having real commercial lapping fluids, uh, lapping slurries and stuff, is is worth the money. That's so totally true. When I was lapping this cylinder, I switched over to some Lapmaster Walters compound that I had. I mean, it was an oil based slurry, and man, that made all the difference. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, now that I've got the light source and I'm starting to be able to observe, I'm going to be lapping everything. <laughs> um, so let's see. We have a question from Wes, Pil uh, Wes Pilly, who asks, how do you know that the optical flat is flat? I mean, the way that I do it is that I have access to optical flats and interferometers of known quality. So I check them against that. But... If you want to check it, there is actually a very, very simple way. And it's a way that most of us are actually familiar with. You use the three plate method. You have three optical flats and you check them against each other, right? If all three of them have uh, straight fringes, right? That means that all three of them match in their surface uh, topography. And the only way for that to be true is if all three of them are flat. So that's a good, that, that's a fast check. You're not correcting anything in that instance, but you can check very quickly. Um, so explain to everybody, because I'm sure there's a, some of the folks aren't familiar at all with the observation of, uh, of the interference lines. Could you just explain what flat looks like and what not flat looks like? Uh, yeah, and let me do a quick plug for this absolutely awesome poster that you can get on eBay, which is worth the 30 bucks. This is the best poster that I've ever seen on reading interferograms. Um, it goes through everything and it's even got some really cool stuff in here like, uh, you are supposed to view interference fringes orthogonally, so 90 degrees to the surface and have the light oriented 90 degrees to the surface. So if you view it at some angle, there's actually a correction factor because the fringes will lose resolution. 
So this is actually the the principle behind grazing in uh, grazing in <clears throat> grazing incidence interferometry. So this is one of the things that uh, like that big Hilger Watts monstrosity that uh, Tom and I uh, reconditioned oh, yeah. a while back. That's what that does, and it just shoots that light at a very extreme angle so that you cover more of the surface, but the resolution of the fringes goes down to like 150 micro inches per fringe, which is way, way, way more than the wavelength of light that you're using. I didn't, I, I, I hadn't thought about that. That's very interesting. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So let's um, talk about fringes. Let, let me explain what's happening here. Yeah. And let me let me pull out one of my one of my really nice nice optical flats. I took out all my optical flats too, just in case people want to see them. <laughs> Good, yeah, we want to see everything. Uh, while we're here, I just want to say uh, uh, hello to Chuck Farmerito, who just joined us. By the way, uh, Adam, you're in uh, California, right? Mm-hmm. Just so everybody knows, Adam's on the West Coast. I'm on the East Coast of the United States. <laughs> All right. Oh, gosh, that, that light's really bright. Yeah, photographing, photographing the is non-trivial. I, I accidentally discovered um, putting a black background underneath an optical flat and then measuring it with another optical flat gave me ridiculous contrast it was awesome oh really actually i wonder if i can if i put a white background on this thing if that will help me turn down the light a little bit yeah a little bit yeah so you can kind of that it's not positioned in exactly the right spot because you gotta you gotta get it over so that the light that's shining out of the monochromatic light source is right over top of the right over the top of the piece. But now you can see those those fringes. Okay, and as I kind of push this around, you can see the fringes moving. So what's happening here is that as uh, and and it has to be monochromatic light. So that's monochromatic single color, right? but specifically single wavelength, truly monochromatic, single wavelength light. Uh, and that comes in. So you have two surfaces. You have the shiny surface on the bottom of the optical flat, and then you have the shiny surface on the test piece. And it has to be shiny enough for this to work. The, uh, some of the light is reflected off of the bottom of the optical flat, and some of the light is reflected off of the test surface. And as they bounce back toward you, the wavelengths interfere with each other, right? So depending on the gap between the two, um, between the two surfaces, right, you'll get these alternating uh, light and dark uh, fringes or bands, which is where the wavelengths either add to each other because they're in phase, or they subtract from one another because they're out of phase, and that's what makes it light and dark. So you read this just like a topographical map, right, where these lines are showing you, uh, again, what the gap is between the two surfaces. And if your optical flat is so flat that it could be considered perfectly flat, then all of the variation must be coming from the test piece. So that's how you can tell, right, how flat your surface is. 
And this one, actually, I think it's, it's pretty flat in the long direction. But it's not particularly flat in the other direction. Hello. Come on, buddy. That's not so bad. But you can see a little bit of curvature there. So just so everybody has a picture in their mind, uh, the, the two surfaces are actually uh, at an angle to each other because one side is touching the, the, the one side of the optical flat is touching the work. The other side is riding up on a cushion of air, right? That is hard to get rid of. So that's what gives you your fringes. Uh, yeah. If I were to smush them down completely, you can see you lose the fringes. Yeah, the fringes go away. So you actually have a little, it's like this, right? This is the advantage of having two video feeds here. Um, and this, the, steeper, the steeper that wedge is, the more fringes you have in, in your space. But we don't care about how many fringes there are. We care about the, the straightness uh, and the parallelism of the, of the fringes. Am I correct? Yeah, I mean, we care about the number of fringes because that gives us our resolution. The bigger that gap that you're talking about, the gap between the, you know, be between the two surfaces, the more fringes you're going to have, but that reduces your resolution. So like what I've got right here, where you've got only maybe like two or three fringes across the whole surface, you're going to be able to see the curvature of the fringes much easier. And so that increases your resolution. But yes, basically, we're just looking for straightness of the fringes. The straighter it is, the flatter it is. Um, and if it's curved, then, well, it's not, it's not flat. And uh, typically, these things tend to be, uh, you know, sort of smooth curves just because of the way that they're made, right? The types of uh, errors that you see are smooth curves. And you can see in this handy-dandy wall chart that, like, if you, this is a spherical spherical surface you can see that the fringes curve away and then this is uh, spherical in the other direction so this is a concave surface this is a convex surface and this is actually kind of a useful mnemonic that uh, robin renzetti taught me which is that uh, if you know where the contact point is right you've got that wedge you know where the contact point is and you're looking from the contact point towards the center of the uh, the flat then a smile means concave and a frown means convex. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of, it's a little tricky, right? I mean, you got to yeah. do your due diligence to make sure that you know exactly what you're looking at. But that actually works really, really well. So, uh, uh, Michelle Izzy Mike says, how do you develop the thin air wedge between the pieces? You just play with it until it looks right. Yeah, you can just smush it around. What you're doing is you're changing the tilt of the optical flat on the surface. And that you can do just by pushing around on it. And then you get the fringes you want. Now on, on like a real interferometer, because the, the step up from using optical flats and monochromatic light sources is to use a proper uh, interferometer. And the easiest one to build and the most common one is called a FISO interferometer. And it's a monochromatic light source that you shoot through a lens to collimate the light. And that shoots through an optical flat and then there's a test piece on the bottom. And again, the light comes back up and it goes through the lens again, and then you look at it. Um, and the nice thing about this is that when you collimate the light, you no longer have to have the two surfaces in intimate contact. Uh, so with just basic monochromatic light, you can get like an eighth of an inch gap. 
But if you use a laser, which is coherent, you can get like several inches of a gap. Beautiful thing about that is that uh, you don't have to have the surfaces in contact. So you don't, uh, you don't have to worry about wear. You don't have to worry as much about cleanliness. Uh, so this is great for like coated optics, mirrors and stuff like that. But the other huge benefit is that the platform that the test piece is sitting on, you can have a tilt table on it. So by changing the tilt of the workpiece, then you can, uh, you can dial in exactly the resolution of the fringes and the way that they're going. And what was the name of that type of interferometer again? Fizzo interferometer, F-I-Z-E-A-U. And uh, if you look back through my Instagram feed, one of the Textbook Tuesday posts was a, an article that tells you how to build a DIY Fizzo interferometer. Awesome. That yeah. sounds like a dangerous amount of fun. That's one of my projects, actually but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Neat. Um, Bart asks, influence slash minimum requirements of surface roughness for using optical flats. So I'm guessing that's of the test surface. And uh, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that you can figure out through trial and error, right? I mean, ground surfaces, uh, if they're a decent grind, will show interference fringes, but it might not be super, um, yeah, the contrast might not be very good, right? So the fringes won't be very bright and, and crisp. So I have a piece of A2, which kicks around the shop, and I use this for demonstrating, uh, for demonstrating PFG stones, because I scratch it intentionally, and then I stone it, and I demonstrate how they work. But what was really interesting is this grind looks awesome, right? It looks like it's a mirror. But I put the, and I'll post this picture later today. I'm, I, I'm sorry I can't show it to you right now. Uh, but I, I put the optical flat on it, and it showed me little ziggy zags, which were the defects in my grinding. And it was awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it'll also show you, uh, it'll also show you the scratches. So you can use it for surface finish evaluation. Yeah. Um, so it, that's actually really cool because basically what you do for surface finish evaluation is you, you have an optical flat on a surface and then you look through the optical flat with a microscope. And so now, because surface finish is basically flatness just on a different scale, right? So now you're evaluating flatness of a surface over a very, very, very small area with high magnification. So everywhere where there's a scratch, right, there's a jog in the fringes. And so yeah. you can evaluate those scratches, like exactly how deep they are to millionths of an inch. Yeah, it, I think we're out of control. I think that's the problem here. We're totally out of control. Uh, let's see, Bart, okay, so Bart, we got you there. And Bart squoes in another question, scraped surface, question mark. Is there any application to scraped surfaces? Um, the problem with scraped surfaces is that they are discontinuous. So for interference, um, for interferograms, you really want continuous smooth surfaces. Uh, otherwise, it would be very, very difficult to read. So there are some scrapes that are really, really high quality, especially if they've been kind of like the highest spots have been lapped and you can use it. Um, the other nice thing about the grazing inter... Uh, every time I say this word, grazing incidence interferometry, the other nice thing about that is that, right, as you kick the surface over, or you, you kick the, the angle of the light over and you cover more of the surface, 
uh, the surface also becomes much more reflective. So you can check things like scrape surfaces and like granite surface plates using this method. Uh, so you can still use it. You just have to, you know, play some tricks. Pretty cool. Um, grinding and Grinding asks, if you change the, the type of monochromatic light you use, could you change the resolution of the fringes? Yes. So the way to read the interferogram is like, let's say that the fringes are curved. So it's the ratio between the spacing of the fringes and the curvature of the fringes, which tells you what it is. So if one fringe is curved equal to the spacing between two fringes, two adjacent fringes, then that means that the surface is curved out of flatness by half of the wavelength of light that you're using. And then yep. if, you know, if you know that number, you multiply it and Bob's your uncle. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you go from like, uh, if you go from, okay, so something that's closer to ultraviolet, right? So blues and violets, uh, you're gonna have, uh, 240-ish uh, nanometers. Yeah, and so that's going to be, that is going to show, that's gonna be higher resolution. Right. And then something closer to infrared, red, whatever, orange is going to be lower resolution. Yeah. So we're talking like 250 nanometers at the ultraviolet end to 700 nanometers at the at the uh, infrared end. So you got about a three to one frequency ratio. I think it's, about it's that. not much. It's not really much, you know, because what, whatever. So like four micro inches is equal to 100 nanometers. So that's not a huge difference. Excellent. Um, let's see, oh, I lost one in the chat here. Okay, Tuck Garage, I'll get to you in a second. Purdy Ethan asks, how should I remove burrs from precision measure equipment, measuring equipment? For example, the caliper jaws. EFG stones. Are real do you have to ask do you have to ask did you put him up to that <laughs> i did not put him up to that but thank you <laughs> you need a set of pfg stones sir that's all i'm gonna say i have that. a little half inch square pfg stone that i use it's in my like precision um precision instrument repair kit that i use for all that type of stuff excellent um tuck garage asks what do you do for large parts that require super large glass optics, i.e. large assemblies, bridge port or bigger? Uh, I would not use an optical flat to check something like that. That's just not the tool that I would use. Um, yeah, there are other ways to check it. There's, there, there are laser tools to do that job, right, over a big area. Well, part of the problem with uh, trying to use optical flats to, to check that, inter, interferometry to check that, um, I mean, plano interferometry, right, where you're comparing two surfaces. Part of the problem is that the larger the optics, right, the more expensive. Uh, and then the other problem is that it gets really, really heavy. And like glass is actually not very rigid. I think people don't realize that. It's much less rigid than steel. Uh, and so as you lay it on top of the surface, it will conform to the surface that it's sitting on, right? 
So the optics have to be really thick so that they're so that they're stiffer. But now you're talking about this huge piece of glass. And if anyone knows anything about the history of like telescope optics, getting a single piece of glass that big and like annealing it without it cracking is super hard to do. Yeah, really yeah. hard to do. Look, look at the um, look at the history of the Hubble, uh, the Hubble te Space Telescope mirror, which is well documented. And it was done at Corning and just getting it getting it done was a huge accomplishment in, in mirrors. Um, yeah. So let's see. And so, somebody says it's a liquid. Is glass a liquid? We're not going to address that today, sir. Sorry, sir. Uh, it does. While glass does not fill the the uh, does not uh, achieve the shape of the volume of the container it's in, it does achieve the shape of your the volume of your checkbook. <laughs> it, they call it an amorphous solid, which is where I think the misconception comes from. But it's just a non-crystalline solid. There you so go. you wanted like crystalline glass is quartz. Non-crystalline silicon oxide is glass. So uh, Purdy Ethan asks. This is our troublemaker, our, our, our troublemaker du jour. He asks, will ringing gauge blocks work in a vacuum? Which I will point out is a great question and simultaneously completely off topic. But let's address that. Uh, it, you absolutely can. And I, every time I read about, you know, ringing of gauge blocks, uh, every book I've seen makes it out like it's some kind of a mystery, right? Where oh, we don't really know why it happens. We have known for a very long time why it happens, okay? Originally, people thought it was like, well, there's a little bit of an oil film, so it's surface tension. But then if they're perfectly chemically dry, they still do it. So then people thought, oh, well, it's vacuum, right? So like the atmospheric, you squeeze out all the air, atmospheric pressure is causing them to stay together. That actually sort of doesn't make sense to me, but it'll still do it in a vacuum. So when people started figuring out about uh, what are called van der Waals forces, intermolecular forces of attraction, they started realizing that, you know, uh, we used to think that it's only something that happens with, uh, with liquids, especially, because that's how liquids stay together. Um, but it actually has an effect on solid phases of matter. It's just that the surfaces have to be in very intimate contact and they have to be super, super smooth, right? So that you've got molecules, so many molecules in such close proximity that they attract to one another. And that's really what ringing is. Although those other factors will also play in. Like one of the ways that you can get a crappy gauge block to ring to another crappy gauge block is just to go, get a little steam on it, right? A little water vapor, I mean, and, uh, and then they'll ring together. And that is just surface tension. Of course, you could also, you could also clean your gauge block and that'll help. It will certainly help. <laughs> It so, really does the PFG stones are amazing. I mean, I've never bought a PFG stone from you. We make our own, but yeah. uh, I could not live without them. I don't even know how I lived without them. How did people live? I don't know. I I really think that they were kept secret for years, and 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 the uh, people lived uh, by keeping them under a black blanket somewhere in the, you know, under their buggy. Uh, <laughs> moving on. So. Uh, uh, I got two stories about uh, about what you just said. One is I had a professor at school uh, who kept on talking. This was, of course, material science, and he kept on talking about Wanderwall's farces. So I always thought that you know if something was farcical, then it had something to do with Wanderwall's farces. 
but the other story was um, the the wire used in bonding integrated circuit uh, uh, contacts to the to the pins of the integrated circuit package is gold, and uh, it it used an ultrasonic needle or finger that would bond just a little bit of ultrasonics. It would bond the gold wire to the pad of the chip. And then similarly to the pad of it. Well, it turns out that when they started doing that, uh, they used pure gold because they, they thought, well, this makes a lot of sense. We, we're going to draw this thing down to about a thousandth of an inch or, or less. Actually, I think it's a lot less to make this wire and we'll make it out of pure gold. So they, they made this magnificent drawing uh, machine and started spooling up the super fine wire. Well, when they did that, it completely solidified on the spool because the pure, pure, pure gold laying on the pure, pure, pure gold just said, hey, this looks good. And it became one piece of metal. So they actually had to start doping the gold with an impurity for that to work. Wow. And uh, that goes right in, you know, it's the same thing. It's like you put those two things together and they want to share. You do it with ultra pure gold. It's like welded. They do that. Optics all the time, right? It's like non. It's basically ringing two pieces of optics together until they they are as one. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, Tuckeraj asks. First of all, Purdy Purdy Ethan says it's the first time he's gotten a good answer on this. Outstanding. That's why we're here. Um, let's see. Uh, Tuckeraj asks: Is there an equivalent? Is there an alter? Let me start again. Is there an alternative measurement method equivalent to optical comparison? Um, it's it's sort of its own thing. I don't think that there's anything else that really gives that same type of like topographical image of a surface. Um, but there are of course tons of other methods that you can use, right? So if you want to check the flatness of something that's really big. Use an, uh, use an auto collimator, right? So like a surface plate, you're not gonna put like a 36 by 48 inch optical flat on top of your surface plate, you're gonna use an optical comparator. And then it's like, you know, you, you measure small, over small distances and then you have a very clever way to link them all together to get an overall topography of the, of the surface. Pretty cool. Can I, you know, I, one thing I really wanted to talk about because we're almost out of time. Go um, to it. Although I can stay a little bit late if people want. But uh, I really wanted to just mention, uh, uh, you know, I talked about cheap optical flats. I want to talk about DIY monochromatic light sources. Yes, uh, let's it, do it. it. In my Instagram feed, you will find it's a little bit earlier on. It's like last year. Um, but I did like a whole series on DIY uh, optical or sorry, monochromatic light sources from like the absolute cheapest, cheapest, cheapest to something that's actually pretty fancy, but still DIY. Um, and so to say that there are really two ways that you can get uh, monochromatic light. One is to filter white light. And then the other is to start with monochromatic light, but then you have to have some kind of a, a light generation device which forms monochromatic light, okay? So just to prove the first one, all right, uh, this is an LED flashlight. LEDs actually are pretty monochromatic, but these white lights, LEDs, they're, they're almost like fluorescent lights. 
Uh, they have phosphorus, uh, phosphor coatings in them, right? And so they typically give off higher energy light, which uh, interacts with the, fluoresce, uh, the phosphor and fluoresces and creates lower energy light, and they can dial in the, the, the spectrum, right? So these are, you know, this is a full spectrum LED light. Um, but still, right, it's got lots of discrete wavelengths in it, just it's got so many of them, right? Uh, and you can filter that out. Right, so you can buy what's called a narrow bandpass filter. This is a green filter, right? Which it's not a perfect spectral peak, but it's very, very, very narrow. Okay, so it's got enough monochromatic stuff, um, light in it to, to make it usable. And then you use, uh, you can buy these diffusion filters. It could be a piece of paper. Uh, you can also get frost glass. This is just something that I use. It's a, it's a plastic film. So let me see if I can proof to you. I'm going to have to turn off the lights because this is quite faint. And it actually uh, shows one of the challenges of using filtered white light, which is that you have to start off with like a ridiculous amount of light first, because you're going to get so little light after filtration. Let's see if I can get it. Oh. oh, I'm having some troubles here. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. I tested it right before we got on today. Oh, I, I, I saw it briefly. Yeah, wow, that is really hard to do. Can you see those? Yes, faintly, yes. Yeah, I mean, the setup is not optimal here because of, well, just trying to shoot it with an iPhone. But you can see that you've got fringes on there. You wouldn't get that otherwise, right? So there you go. You can filter white light. But it's awkward. So in the chat, you know, people, a couple of people made some mention. Dennis Jickman said, uh, an energy saver bulb with a green filter. Uh, I've seen references to those. Um, one of the problems is that a lot of these bulbs that we then modify or filter are going away. Like the fluorescence uh, are starting to go away uh, The in favor of LEDs. Uh, one thing that I found um, also works is a green laser. Uh, take off the uh, final optics and put a uh, put a ping pong ball on it for diffusion. Not my idea, um, but uh, that that absolutely works. But it's not efficient. It's not a good way to make a lot of it. Uh, Flood City Tooling, take care, man. He's just checking out. The other thing I don't like about using laser diodes, they're not like super stable. And there are all these other effects like uh, speckling and stuff like that. And it's, they're really bright, man. And like after looking at them for a long time, my, my eyes get really fatigued. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a path uh, to see if we can make a, a, low, a relatively low-cost source um, that's a lot lower than the, 
many thousands of dollars uh, that a typical one costs. So I'll, I'll report back to the community as I learn, but I've got a couple of things in the fire right now. Um, and no. I, right. I, I looked at LEDs and they're not, they're not terribly narrow band. Um, and some are better than others. Uh, so I don't know if that's going to be a solution either. Uh, yeah, they're not great. They're not ideal. Yeah. Not. But um, so for the, uh, you know, the, the other way, right, to, to get monochromatic light is to use a source which is monochromatic. And so typically what we think of is gas discharge lamps. And so that's where you, you electrically excite a gas and it causes the electrons to jump into a higher shell and then they jump back down. And when they jump back down, they release energy, right? And that energy is released as light. And because the energy levels are quantized, right? It's a very specific amount of energy that's associated with that. The wavelength of light, of that light that is uh, emitted, is also very, very discrete, right? Uh, wavelength of light level, but also has uh -oh. color. We had a minor drop out there, Adam. Yeah, where did you lose me? Uh, basically, yeah, we heard you say that the discrete uh, levels lead to very discrete colors of light, and then, then right. for a second. Yeah, because the energy of light has to do with its wavelength, which is its color, right? And so we want monochromatic light. We want light of a very specific energy. So there are lots of vapor, gas vapor uh, discharge lamps that are out there, right? Fluorescent lights are one of them. They're actually mercury discharge lamps that have phosphors in them. So like uh, mercury produces an enormous amount of uh, UV, right? And then that hits the phosphors and fluoresces at lower energy levels in visible light. But there's also um, uh, sodium vapor discharge lamps, which is uh, what used to be in uh, street lamps, but is you know, now being replaced by neon uh, or not neon um, LED. There's also the helium lights that are commonly used uh, in... Uh, you know, the professional monochromatic light sources. But there are a number of other ones, right? I mean, uh, cadmium used to be very, very common. Actually, the um, uh, lengths of measurement, units of measurement, the standards used to be defined in, um, in cadmium light, right? Although now it's time of flight measurements using advanced atomic clocks and, um, uh, and lasers. But back in the day, yeah, I mean, like in the 50s, 60s, for a little time, it was defined based on interferometry. So, yeah. I, I had the idea that neon bulbs, right? We, we, we're aware that there's neon signs out there. Um, they exist and they're gas discharge lights. So I looked into it. It turns out that neon bulbs are mostly argon uh, because neon is really expensive um, and that they, they are typically using a, uh, a colorant on the inside of the glass tube. But uh, there's some there's some hope there that um, the neon bulb technology can be used to make some helium uh, bulbs uh, relatively inexpensively because I think that's all they're really that's all they're really doing. Um, I wanted to point one safety thing out. Uh, there's some talk about using so-called black lights without the coating on the glass tube. Now, listen, people, this is known as a germicidal bulb, okay? And they're meant to put out a crap ton of UVA. And they may have some other useful things. Be very, very careful with these. This is not a toy. That UVA will...
cause some serious health impacts. So just be careful. I, I, I'm yeah. looking into those bulbs also. Uh, and if you're going to use something like that, they have to be heavily filtered. So be careful. That's all. Great segue, actually, because they're, they're mercury discharge lamps. They are uncoated fluorescent bulbs. And yes. like I said, fluorescent bulbs put out an S-ton of UV specifically because they want it to fluoresce at lower energy levels. Um, but my, my favorite, I'll just say... I've got, uh, so this is, you can see all this in my Instagram feed. This is my uh, low, low pressure sodium lamp that I made. Um, this is kind of my, you know, nearly professional uh, substitute. This is a really awesome light, but this is probably my favorite version. Uh, this is also the one that John Grimsmo um, wanted to build. And he actually built one after he contacted me. Uh, this is made with an old Porta Trace light box photographic light tracing box i have one and, <laughs> yeah it's got basically everything that you need and inside of it is uh, they make them in two versions with one bulb and then one with two bulbs and uh, you, you ought to get the one with two bulbs i didn't even know about that but it's called the uh that's the 16 watt version the eight watt version is the single uh single bulb but this is just a it's a t8 form factor uh standard standard fluorescent bulb. This is the one that it comes with. This is the one that it comes with. Um, yeah, these are available everywhere. Uh, and this is actually almost good enough. It comes with a triphosphor type fluorescent um, bulb, which uh, fluoresces at three discrete wavelengths. Uh, and the largest one is at green. So if you put a, a green filter over top of this, it's like almost good enough. That's pretty uh, cool. Clean it up a little bit by buying one of those UV germicidal lamps, which is exactly this thing, just without a coating on it. And that's what I've gotten here. And then over, like between this diffusing filter and the light, I put one layer of UV filter that I got from Edmund Optics. And then I put another one of those green filters and Can I turn it on? You have to plug these things in. I thought they were wireless. Yeah. I'm doing something wrong here, folks. In any case, in any case, I also have all this information on my Instagram feed. Anyway, that, that's my favorite version. It, it works really well. Uh, the colors are super, or the fringes are super, super crisp. It's very inexpensive. You can buy them on eBay now. Don't buy a new one because they switched over to uh, LED, but buy one of the older ones for yeah. almost nothing on eBay. Switch out the, uh, the light bulbs. You know, those are also really cheap. You can buy those on Amazon. UV filter, get it on Edmund Optics. Uh, and then I have the information for the green filter that I use in my Instagram feed. It's a Roscoe Lux uh, R90. Is, is there any way we can, we can we can consolidate your monochromatic light information onto a easy to get at web page? I've been meaning to do that for the longest time. <laughs> well, I, I would be happy to give you a page on on kinetic precision. Uh, if if you send me the stuff, I'll just I'll just heave it onto a page, and then we'll let everybody know. Uh, that's not a bad idea. Eventually, I'm going to make a YouTube video about it. But, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, for now, I can totally, 
I don't know, I can also put it on our department website. That's usually where I dump my projects. Oh, cool. Well, it's a very, I think that's a very useful thing. Um, you can help, help everybody. So we are, we are well over time, but I, I want to say that this was more fun than should be legal. Thank you very much, Adam, for sharing and uh, some really practical, practical good information there. So if anybody wants to follow you, I uh, want you uh, make sure everybody has your information. Yeah, it's Laney Machine Tech. L-A-N-E-Y Machine Tech, all one word. Um, yeah, that's what we do, or that's what who we are on Instagram. I mean, it's mostly me doing it, but it's really our entire machine technology department at Laney College. Awesome. Hey, would, uh, would you come back? If we... Sure, man. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. It was super cool questions. Yeah, good. We have a good crowd, uh, and it's growing. So, uh, thanks again, Adam. Thank you, everybody, for being here and submitting questions. We'll see you guys next week, Sunday, same bad time, same bad channel. Uh, go make something. See ya. Peace. Thanks, Adam.